0: A plurality of Americans consistently rank healthcare as their number one public policy priority. In times of crisis, too many of us as Americans find access to quality healthcare unattainable as we wrestle with a simple but unyielding question, how will I pay for it? Our guest today promises at least some solution to this enormously important problem. Brad Hahn, CEO of Solidarity HealthShare, joins us to speak about the present and future of American healthcare And how health sharing, as compared to health insurance, might address some of the affordability crisis that too often makes life-affirming responses difficult in our day-to-day lives. I'm Tom Shakley, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law. Welcome to Life, Liberty, and Law. I am Tom Shakley, and I'm joined today, and I'm joined today by Brad Hahn, CEO of Solidarity HealthShare. Brad, welcome to the show. Yes, thank you. It's great to be here. And we've also got our own Noah Brandt here from Americans United for Life. Noah, it's good to be here with you.
1: Hey, great to be here, Tom. Excited to uh, to talk to Brad. I mean, he's doing something innovative in the healthcare space,
0: which is uh you know hard to come by. Yeah. So, Brad, before we get into your work with Solidarity, let's get into some of the personal stuff. Tell us a bit about yourself, your journey. Yeah, well, I'm a recovering attorney, so I was, uh, I was, uh, I practice law. and That's the key there. You
2: practice because you never actually become a good lawyer. I guess you're always practicing, right? But I had a, I had a law firm for 21 years, and so what I did is I did a lot of end of life issues, fought for conscious protection on end of life. I had a wills and trust practice, so I was able to really form uh, my clients on how to make good moral decisions on the end of life. And plus, saved them millions of dollars in when we had estate tax issues, you know, many years ago, and that kind of led to a lot of other issues. Where a group of a group of Catholic businessmen in Phoenix approached me and said, uh, "We want to start this thing called a healthcare sharing ministry." And I was like, "Well, what the heck is that, and why are you asking me, right?" And what happened next was they explained it to me, and I was like, "Well, I this this sounds good, but I don't know if we really need it." Well, then the Affordable Care Act was passed. And with the Affordable Care Act, it's forcing, as everyone knows by now, it's forcing millions of Americans uh, to violate their conscience, to pay for contraception, sterilization, abortion, and now gender reassignment surgery after a, a recent amendment. And so uh, I had to get involved. And my, these, these founders came over to me and asked me if I'd get involved. And I said, I'd pray about it. You know, that's kind of an out, you know, for, for us. You know, we'll pray about it. Then my wife looked at me. And she says, uh, Brad... Uh, what did they want? Well, they want me to help with this health care sharing ministry, how to form it. They want me to be the lead legal mind on it. And she says, you're going to do it, right? I said, ah, I really don't want Ooh, to. You're
1: going to do it right. That's a good, that's a good yeah. response. <laughs> that's scary. And, <laughs> then,
2: and then she put her, her, her finger down. She says, well, Brad, there's not a Catholic one out there right now, and we're Catholic, and there is no way my family, our family is going to pay for health insurance and fund abortion, contraception, and sterilization. You best find a solution for us Catholics and our family.
0: Your wife put you to work.
2: Yeah, a I just—I just, I just, woman. I just, I just said yes, good. dear. Right, that's all yeah. you can do for that. <laughs> that's beautiful. It's impressive.
0: Yeah, so this is this is why you're uh, you're doing this current work instead of uh, still working as a lawyer, but billing hundreds of dollars an hour. Right.
2: Yeah. Well, I didn't usually bill by the hour. I had set fixed. Sometimes they call them flat fees, but other times the lawyer slip and call them fat fees. Right. You know. <laughs> so, yeah, but it
1: was it was that describes the fee in a different way. Yeah. Exactly.
2: Yeah. I mean, it, it was a blessing um, to to uh represent so many families on on wills and trusts and be there for them in their time of need help them pastorally get through to make end of life decisions but it was a natural progression to come on board with do something with solidarity to fight for conscience rights conscience protection and then really try to make a, an impact on how bad this healthcare system is how dysfunctional it is and that's what we're trying to find some creative solutions for
0: okay so Brad in broad strokes Tell us, what is health sharing? Well, it's
2: basically a, a biblical concept. Remember in the Bible, and you can see this in that, I look at that Apostle Paul movie when all the Catholics and Christians would come together, form a community. Not only would they you know, prayerfully support one another, they'd also financially support one another, right? And that's what we're trying to reignite again in, in the Catholic community and the Christian community. And so we basically have a community right now, we have about 8,300 families, a little over 22,000 souls on Solidarity Health Share. We come together as a community to support one another spiritually, but also uh, financially by sharing each sharing uh, one another's medical expenses. And in a big stroke, there's different nuances of health sharing, but how we decided to operate, we wanted to stand in and be an advocate for our members. And so I'll give you a, a classic example how it would work then. We had uh, a member early on when we just founded of Literary Health Share, she had uh, breast cancer. And she had that BRCA gene, that predisposed her to future cancer. So they, after the, the breast cancer was gone, they did a, you know, a double, you know, amputation, mastectomy on that. And then um, after that, um, she had over six hundred medical bills presented to her over a year and a half period. Six hundred. Yeah, and she was able to um, go to the best cancer treatment center she wanted to that she chose, and we helped her choose the right one that she, that was a good fit for her. That's what we did as advocacy work. She has four kids. At that time, they were going to four different schools. Could you imagine a mother of four, you know, and husband taking care of the family, you know, taking care of the kids running around and get over 600 medical bills, right? And they amounted to over $400,000. And so, what we did as an advocate, we said we took all those bills from her and we went and itemized and repriced every single one of them. And we got that amount down to under $200,000 by negotiating. And since it was an eligible medical expense pursuant to our member guidelines, then we submitted that for sharing. And then that's the other thing we do at Solidarity, uh, our leadership team. We facilitate the sharing of that that payment among our members. So like she paid, her family was paying $449 per month at the time. And so that didn't cover the $200,000, right? And so other families, we allocated their $449 a month to go over to her account to make sure her doctors and the hospitals and everything were paid. So it's pretty simple concept, but it's pretty difficult to, to, to execute.
1: You know, before we get more into the specifics of it, I think just the general service that, that you provide for families whenever they're hit with a bill like that, right, yeah. it can bring on despair. Uh, I, I was listening to a town hall that Bernie Sanders was doing a few weeks ago, and one of the participants asked a question about Medicaid expansion. And sort of the the way that she brought it up was that her friend was kicked off of Medicaid, and then he committed suicide, or as the catalyst of, of him committing suicide because he had these medical bills that he didn't know how how he could pay for it, right. and he obviously felt like he had no support in any way, and it pushed him to make uh, to, to to make that horrible decision. So I think that just even before we get into the, the specifics, it's important just to realize that something, something that you're providing that's somewhat intangible is a feeling of security and a, and a guard against despair.
2: Yeah, and advocacy, right? And that, that's that's what we want to be about is how do we, the healthcare crisis in this country is such a mess. And how, so how do we navigate the faithful through this mess, right? No, Not many people know, understand how the healthcare system works and we try to understand it. And it's kind of a, a loose, elusive kind of, uh, uh, way to go at times, but that's where we're there for them. And so, and we're getting at, we're getting our members being the biggest advocates. And I'll give you an example. We had one of our members was going for an outpatient outpatient procedure and the hospital system submitted the bill to solidarity with $75,000. We called the hospital system, got that repriced, renegotiated down to 25,000. She shows up at the hospital for that procedure that day. And you know what they did? They said, hey, if you pay with your credit card right now, we'll drop it to 10000 And so what she did, she ripped out her credit card, put it on her credit card with the faith that we were going to reimburse her. Then she calls us the next day. You guys are going to reimburse this medical expense, right? <laughs> but look what she did. Look what our members do. They want to keep the cost of their health care down. Their incentive. Their incentives, right? And so if, if our, the moment our members treat us like insurance, I don't care what things cost. You know, what it's up to the insurance company to pay. We're gonna be no different than the insurance company. But this member knew that if she saved fifteen thousand dollars solidarity, that affects her. It impacts her because now her monthly contribution won't go up that month, right? And so we got a lot of families, a lot of a lot of moms that just get so angry at the healthcare system and they're fighting for the best and reasonable price.
0: Now, I think many people are wondering, you know, they're thinking, isn't that what health insurance companies do already? Aren't they the ones fighting for me? Aren't they the ones advocating for me? Not everyone feels that way, but you would think that's that's what's going on there, right? So what, what makes the health sharing approach different than when it comes to being an advocate and, and particularly with those kind of repricing issues you're talking about?
2: Well, the big thing is, is the biggest crisis in the healthcare system right now is is no one knows what medical care costs in this country. The consumer doesn't. The providers don't, and the health insurance insurance companies don't. So that's a problem. An example was this. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal last fall that they had a, um, a hospital system in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and I drove by the hospital system when I was there last month at Carter Burke's Canada Law Conference, so I said a prayer for them, of course, but they were charging over $25,000 for a knee procedure, and somebody said, well, how much does this actually cost? They said it only cost them $10,000 to perform. No one sat down to figure out how much this was going to cost. So they were overbilling insurance by $15,000. And the reason I share this with people is because how it's negotiated. So like when a hospital system submits bills, block bills, you know, to the, to the, to the insurance company, let's say it's $5 million. You would hope that the insurance company would vet that. They don't. They just pick up the phone and say, hey, will you take $2 million this week? Or $2.5 million, whatever you want to do. And that's how it's negotiated. So no one knows what things cost versus when we see something, I'll give you an example. We had a, uh, we had a bill last fall that was submitted and we had a hundred dollar line item thing in there for a mucus collection device, hundred bucks. It was a box of tissues. What a joke. Yeah. And so then I was involved with a a cancer treatment company that does a really good job. And they said, Oh, Brad, we're going to give you a great discount. We're going to give you 55% off bill charges. You know, bill charges. Who in the heck knows what a bill charges? You know, it's, it's a made up number, right? Because they have no idea what things cost. And I said, great. Well, let me share something with you. We just got billed for 100 bucks for a mucus collection device. So you're telling me you're only going to charge me $45 for that? That's what you're going to charge our members? And they said, yeah. I said, that was a box of tissues that I just quoted you. And I said, I'm not playing this game with you. Well, that's how the game works, blah, blah. I said, I don't care. I said, I want to ask you a different question how is this reference-based to Medicare, right? Right. He says, oh, this is about 350% with Medicare. And I said, we're overpaying then. I said, can we do something like, what do you need? Do you need 120% what Medicare would pay, 150? Give us a number, but give us an accurate number. I don't want to play these games where you overbill and see what sticks, because there's no accountability, there's no transparency in that, right, Noah?
1: It, it is. You're absolutely right. It reminds me of, you know, a couple of years ago, it came out that like the Navy was paying a thousand dollar for toilet yeah. seats on battleships, right? Just because there's no, since it's not like anyone's, it's it's not anyone's money, or at least it's not in people's the buyer's minds, It's not my money, or it's not anyone that they know's money. It's just like this general amorphous money. Yeah. So there's no incentive to keep costs slow i mean the one the the only rule of economics that works every single time is that people respond to incentives and if the incentives are to use a lot of care and to not care about the cost then what's that going to do it's going to drive costs sky high
2: right yeah it's uh you identify the key problem is the the consumer using the traditional health insurance model is so detached from the system and the pricing system they have no skin in the game
1: the, the craziest thing someone will say, right, about a procedure is they'll they'll you know talk to their insurance company, about they'll they'll go to the doctor and they'll come back and say, oh, it's free, right? Oh, it's free. Yeah. I, I mean, someone's paying for it, right? And that's over driving overall healthcare costs higher.
2: Exactly. Well, I was at an urgent care because I had some uh, a bronchitis issue a couple summers ago, and the urgent care doc looked at me and he says, "Well, you got this bronchitis. Um, what insurance do you have?" And I said, "It's irrelevant." what insurance i have doc what's the best thing you can do to get me healthy and i said and then we'll make sure you get paid and he just like stepped back yeah. and i was like i uh, <laughs> used to hearing that <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> so is health sharing intended to supplement or to replace insurance
2: it's um uh, most families that are um, under the medicare age um, they use it to replace health insurance and we got to be mindful because why do people want to replace health insurance Number one, most of our members want to replace traditional health insurance because of the moral objections, right? The they don't want to pay for contraception, sterilization, abortion, gender reassignment surgeries, and alike. That's the ma- that's the main reason. But the other reason is because they have skin in the game, and we teach them how the whole game is played. Um, they do it for a cost perspective. You know, like my family of four, we pay four forty nine a month. It, it's unheard of that you can get this type of medical expenses being paid with only paying $449 per month. So it's basically that. And when you get to Medicare age, um, solidarity may be a good supplement. You know, you have the you know, the BCD the supplements. And so we have a lot of um, our members that once they turn, you know, once they get on Medicare, because you have to get on Medicare in order to get your social security check, right. You, you know, try not receiving your social security security check. They'll track you down, you know,
0: <laughs> believe it or not. So I think a fundamental question when it comes to personal or family health and medical issues is essentially, can we rely on this? You know, can we trust this? How do you speak to those concerns? You know, does this work essentially?
2: Yeah, well, um, according to the state of Maryland, I, I cannot say that it works because that's part of the safe harbor exemption. So I can't ever say that this works. So I'd be violating. So I'm, I'm not saying that, right? <laughs> <So>. <laughs>
1: well, you're in Washington, D.C. right now. Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. And so... Um, it, it basically, when I look at it, it is uh, the track record of, of health care sharing ministries is it's been around as a modern movement of forty five years, um, and like our, our movement with solidarity was started back in nineteen seventy five by a real small uh, Mennonite church, and so then um, they approached us and said, "I know you're trying to start a Catholic health sharing ministry. Can we help you with that? We want to give you the exemption so you can make sure health care sharing is available to Catholics, you know, nationwide." And so we have a lot of our non-Catholic brothers and sisters that join as well, because in my experience uh, and with my certification of bioethics is um, the church is very clear on morals and ethics teaching. You know, They they may have a lot of other problems going on in the church right now, but most of our non-Catholic brothers and sisters agree with the church teaching on life. And so we welcome those those, uh, brothers and sisters to come and join us as well.
0: So I think people are going to wonder, is health sharing just faith based, or is it open to secular folks as well?
2: It's according to um, the exemption under the Affordable Care Act, or sometimes I call it the not so affordable Care Act because that's what it turned out to be. Right? <laughs> um, it's there. It has to be some kind of faith based or, or moral based. Um, the more narrow you can construe that, you know, like I'm a part of this religious sect, or I'm part of the Catholic Church, or I'm part of the Lutheran Missouri Synod. If you can restrict that more, that's that's really the spirit of what you see in these these laws because under there's thirty states right now that have safe harbors. If you follow these items, you're not considered health insurance. And one of them is that moral, that face based component.
1: A quick financial question again on that. So I think another thing people look for with uh trying to provide for their health care needs is predictability. Right. Is there predictability month to month in what a family's contribution will be? Or how does that work if there's an unforeseen high you know, if, if somebody does have a four hundred thousand dollar surgery that they didn't see coming, how does that work? Yeah.
2: Well, first of all, four hundred thousand dollars surgery, we can probably get down to about one hundred and twenty five right? thousand right, <laughs> yeah. right yeah, and so if you look at it, um, the certainty we have um, so far this year, we're averaging about a fifty nine percent discount on our members' medical bills. And so that's kind of what what we track. But as a health sharing ministry because we're not insurance, we can't be uh, prospective or yeah, we're always retrospective, you know, because with retrospective, we can see what the spend was, you know, and how much it is, and we can make adjustments to that. But once we start predicting,
1: in, in sort of in layman's terms, you're saying that with like this month's contributions, you're paying for last month's expenditure. Exactly.
2: Right? Okay. Yeah. and so then uh, we constantly monitor that, and you'll see in our member guidelines that'll say, you know if if we see the amount of bills that are, are, are it, it coming in this month, we may have to go to our membership and ask to raise that monthly contribution, you know, by maybe twenty five, fifty dollars uh, per uh, you know per month you know, we, uh, we're we trying to take as many people as we can with pre-existing conditions to a certain degree. And we also share in other things like uh, NAPRO technology and, um, and also naturopathic care. And so as we start to expand to be really faithful to the church, um, it comes with some expense. And so we're constantly monitoring that.
0: It's fascinating to hear how you at Solidarity and at how health sharing in general can actually step in and truly lower medical costs, really just by asking in many cases it's right. funny to hear the things that aren't done that you think would have Coming been Coming to the table yeah, yeah. well
2: there was a, a study that was done on that not too long ago it was i guess the study was just last month and the the survey said that um, only 12% of the people that went to this hospital system actually shopped the price beforehand 28% discussed those costs with the hospital staff before the hand before the before the visit and among those 88% who did not price shop 38% did not know that those, uh, those costs would even vary. And I'll, I'll give you—it's unbelievable. Yeah, give you a class. Well, we are
0: trained. You know, we are trained as consumers to think that healthcare is sort of outside those bounds, right? We don't have to think yeah. about those costs. And, well, we're think,
1: to, and even even those who study this type of thing, like so one of the first things a lot of times you're told, even in like a graduate type of level healthcare course, is like, oh, the n- normal economics do not pertain to healthcare, and so that immediately makes you think, right? Like, okay, then right. price and price it's and demand are not zone. responsive. Yeah,
2: yeah. so I, I only care about what my copay is, right? right. And that's what they—that's what they do, but. Give you an example here. One study um, for an MRI on the lower back uh, at an imaging center in Jefferson, Louisiana. We found out that that cost one hundred and forty-one dollars. We found another hospital system in Torrance, California. That same procedure that cost one hundred forty-one dollars was seven thousand six hundred forty-six dollars. <laughs> oh my Gosh. goodness! Right, and so in, uh, just like when, it's not a cost of living adjustment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, if you look at it, um, when we like, I had to take my son to urgent care about a month ago. And I drove by like eight urgent cares before I got to the one that I decided to go to. You know why? Because it was the best cash pay price, and it wasn't a big hospital system that's a part of, because their hospital systems are just a nightmare to work. And I knew if I went and, and gave them my $250, I would be dealing with them for eight months on this bill, calls going back and forth. So I went to one place. They charged me $75. Um, and my son got his prescription he needed, and we were out of there in a half hour, right? And so you have to be good consumers now, but we've been trained as Americans, right? I don't care what healthcare costs. Here's my insurance card, and now it's coming back to bite us, especially with the profits of uh, insurance companies are up forty six percent every year.
1: I, I want to push a little bit further on this cost question. Yeah. I think that with healthcare, so that's what so many people are first thing, because here's like it or not, right? American healthcare quality is very high, right? Uh, so it's people are really concerned about cost. The the biggest driver of American healthcare costs are chronic conditions. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not the urgent care visits. It's not generally healthy people getting sick. It's these chronic conditions that are extremely costly and could last thirty to you know seventy years. How how does you know the health the health sharing model address uh, patients with chronic conditions?
2: Yeah the the model itself doesn't address it, and so what I can tell you, what we're taking proactive steps on that, and so uh, our chief medical officer, um, Dr. John Ertley. Um, his passion is how to restore wellness to the chronically ill, and so his background is in—I don't know what they do. I'm a lawyer, so I don't—I don't know what these <laughs> doctors do, right? Yeah, but he'll, he'll, he will he will can explain it to me. But um, I'll give you an example um, uh, what they do. Like um, a personal example, my wife has Lyme disease, right? And and if you go traditionally to a doctor, they don't know how to treat that. Well, Doctor Ertley's uh, facility where he worked for the last many years, and now he's working for us full time. Uh, is one of the best Lyme treatment centers, you know, in the country. And so what they're doing is that she's, on a, a um, she's on a lot of antibiotics. She's on a lot of, you know, a saline packs and stuff like that with intravenous stuff to give vitamins and, and to get rid of a lot of this disease and stuff like that. But with the goal of returning her back to wellness once she gets all the, the 10 different Lyme diseases out of her out of her body, right? And and it's the same thing with, uh, with arthritis, with pain. And so we're trying to creatively try to find solutions for our members. And that's something we will do for our members. And that's where we advocate too, is if somebody calls in and says, I don't know what's going on. You know, uh, Dr. Ertley can be there for them to give them ideas. And I'll give you a classic example is we had a, a member that was applying and she had um, about five miscarriages. This, this, this married mom did. And so our nursing staff says, well, we can't really take them. It's going to be very expensive. And it's like, well, first of all, you know, pregnancy is not a disease. It's not a pre-existing condition. Number one, and number two, let's go look at have Doctor. Ertley look at this. And he read through the file, and he says, "I think she's low on this natural chemical that should be in her body. That's less." And so he picked up the phone and called and said, "We we'll, we will take you as a member on one condition, uh, but it's not really condition like a, like a contract. We think, but if if you, I think you're low in this one supplement, is like folic acid or something like that. And so once you get pregnant you need to get on this right away. And I think that may prevent your next miscarriage. Sure enough, she came on, got pregnant right away, did the folic acid or whatever it was, delivered the baby to term.
1: And I'm sure she was thrilled to be given some direction on how to prevent a tragedy from happening to her.
2: Yeah.
0: Okay, so let's shift gears just a bit and talk about health sharing in the overall healthcare landscape. So healthcare concerns consistently rank as a number one policy priority for American voters. I'd like to punt this to Noah to get your read on a few popular healthcare proposals that are being bandied about.
1: You know, these uh, w- watching the democratic debates, even watching the president speak gearing up for re-election, Tom's right, it's all, it's what people are talking about and the politicians are good at talking about what people want to talk about. So they're, the uh healthcare is on the forefront of everyone's minds. Let's talk about the a public option, you know. So uh, what what a public option would be would be allowing uh, American citizens to buy into some sort of government program. You know, Pete Buttigieg calls it Medicare for Medicare for all who want it, you know, being able to buy into a Medicare-like program. So talk about that would be giving just normal Americans under 65 who are not disabled the uh, option to buy into government health care.
2: Well, well, first of all, when they're talking about Medicare for all, most of those uh, Democratic candidates are, are saying that you also have to outlaw any private insurance. You know, we're, we're seeing, that, seeing that a lot. And I would just address it with this point is, we have no transparency in billing right now. We have no ideas what things cost. It's estimated that over ten years it costs about thirty-two trillion um, to implement something like this. I bet it's going to be a lot more than that. So you have to get a handle on this transparency first before you try to expand it. And I think it's another way to just for our, our Christian uh, conscience rights to be further violated. Because if you go with the federal option, um, you you can't you, you you're forced to pay for that. You know, it, it may be a little different if you get into the remote or material cooperation evil analysis. We can get into that sometime, but that's kind of boring for a lot of people. Um, but to me, is um, it, it's it's a, it's a non-starter. And I always look, and I was just on uh, at the White House this afternoon meeting with the Domestic Policy Council on this. And if you we are talking about, you know, we have eight thousand three hundred families right now. Um, we are kind of like a Walmart employer in a way because we go out like what Walmart does, what Amazon does, they go out and negotiate fair and reasonable pricing for their employees, right, to save money. So if you take this over to public option and force Amazon, Walmart to go to a public option, it's going to bankrupt them. There's no way they can financially afford this because a lot of these companies are struggling right now to deliver uh, health insurance to um, to their members now. And so getting the government hands on it And I'm a big proponent of what Ronald Reagan said. It was either his first or second inaugural inaugural address when he said, um, government is not the solution to the problem. Government is the problem, right? (laughs)
1: Well, how do you respond? So you made compelling arguments, right, about... economics, about uh, Healthcare conscience violations A lot of people don't care about that, right? Right. And, And a lot of people will say that healthcare Shouldn't be a money issue, it shouldn't be a You know, a your religion issue It should be a human right to have healthcare, that it's a human right, and that by opposing Medicare for all or opposing insert here, you are you know uh, just exercising your privilege yeah. and denying other people a human right. What what do you say to the idea that healthcare is a human right? And to that argument overall.
2: Well, I think you could make an argument, and I, we've seen some bishops in the church say it's it's a it's a human right, but just because it's a human right, that doesn't mean the government has to pay for it, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, you know, I have a I have right to life, liberty, and property. But that doesn't mean the government's got to buy me a house either, and Good so point. yeah, and so what I I think um, it is I think as especially in an industrial country we you know, like you said before we have an incredible medical system in this country, but we got the worst payer system in the world, right? You know, and so um, making it a right, I'm all for that. But let's talk about how we can intelligently make sure everyone gets the health care they need. And another thing, you got to be very careful of in this argument, especially when the presidential debates um, talk about this. They say, "Well, if you don't give them health health insurance, you're denying health care to millions of Americans." No, 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 you're not. You're just denying health insurance to millions of Americans. They can still get health care because Ronald Reagan said, "And you can't be denied going to an emergency room, you know, based on uh, your ability to pay, right? And based on your lack of insurance." And so, you got to be very that that's they really try to obfuscate that. I yeah. think, yeah.
1: No, I, I think I think you're right, and I think that what a lot of people don't understand just because they don't like to talk about the money part of healthcare. It makes them uncomfortable, right? They don't like the idea that some people are receiving better care than others. And you've talked a lot about your success in negotiating down these prices. But even right when you were talking about one of your examples, you were saying, okay, instead of paying 300% Medicare rate, what if we paid 150? Because what a lot of people don't get is that if hospitals and doctors were purely reimbursed at the Medicare rate for all patients, there wouldn't be uh, like hospitals or doctors because, you know, doctors break even or worse on Medicare, on the Medicare rate.
2: Well, do you know why that is, though? You know, why they can't make money at Medicare because they're dealing with these insurance companies and the government, and the amount of time it takes to deal with an insurance company or the federal government to get reimbursed, it's any. It's estimated about 50 to 60% of their overhead goes to dealing with the insurance company and the government programs. Wow. And so we have people, we have uh, providers, doctors, that actually say, um, I can make money on 80% of medicare working with solidarity because i don't have to have a crew of, of people calling and fighting with you all the time so if we submit a fair and reasonable bill you know that's going to take one person instead of three right
1: that's and that's so funny and I, I think that's one of the most specious arguments that people make for medicare for all because they make the argument that the overhead cost will go down right you know and, and like
2: have you ever dealt with a bureaucracy before? it's going to go up
1: it's going to go up
2: yeah Yeah, and so we actually have some providers that take you know eighty percent because they say we believe in what you're doing, and so I want to kind of give a personal tithe to my services. I make money at ninety percent if I don't have to deal with an insurance company, uh, but I want to do it for eighty because I want to make sure all your families are really provided in a good and ethical way, because that's my that's my way to give back to you solidarity.
1: That's great. So on a more possibly promising uh, policy idea, you know, what do you think of direct primary care? And we've talked about that a little yeah. on the show. I think it's new to a lot of Americans. Um, what do you think of that?
2: I think, uh, and I see this in the, in the Trump administration too, especially with that executive order that came out on June 24th of you know this last year, last month. Um, they want to have um, some tax advantages, not tax advantages, but almost tax parity for members of health sharing ministries, as well as um, uh, members who are doing direct primary care. You know, I think direct primary care really is a great model because it really controls the costs.
1: Would you briefly explain what direct primary care is for? Yeah,
2: and not being a doctor, not just being a lawyer. Direct primary care, how I understand it is, I'll just give an example. Like um, we're looking at one right now for my family to join and they want 50 bucks a month, you know? And then that gives us, you know, six visits. And it's like a doctor practice. Yeah, it's a yeah. doctor. Yeah. We would go, this one we're looking at is a naturopath doctor because in Arizona we have naturopaths, you know, and not a medical doctor. We have a lot of success in our family with, with the naturopaths. And so then they would see me, they would take phone calls from me. I have the I have the doctor's cell phone number for emergencies and such like that. But then, once I get there, and there's something that they can't treat, maybe I have a broken arm when I walk in there, right? They would say go to the hospital or go to an urgent care to get that provided. But it, it's a way for it to take care of um, the direct primary care. The whole idea is to take care of the basics, right? You know, the sniffles, right. the stuff, and like you're what, paying in advance. Yeah, exactly. And we've also done that too. With solidarity, is uh, we have a telehealth program, you know, and so um, like my wife had a had an, something an infection the other the other night, and Instead of hauling off to urgent care, you know, we just called there and then they called in a prescription for us. And with an hour, I'm on my way to the to the pharmacy. And so there are um, alternatives and better ways to do and deliver medicine in this country. And that and that's what we're, we're trying to really find these solutions,
0: you know, for for our members. Okay, are there any policy prescriptions that you can think of, Brad, that would improve affordability or flexibility in the healthcare space? I mean, especially as it relates to producing more life-affirming outcomes.
2: Yeah, I think the, the biggest issue is is the more of the transparency in the billing that the Trump administration is really pushing. Um, because in order to get some free market principles in there, we have to know what things cost. And there's gonna there's a, that executive order also talks about how they're gonna tr- force hospitals to disclose what the rates are with the insurance companies. Well, they won't like that. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, they're they're gonna take it they'll take it to court, which they they do. And so that's the that's the issue here is every single thing the Trump administration has done, even with Health and Human Services with the conscience rules they've implemented, none of those are truly implemented now because they're stuck in court. And so what it's gonna take for us is to step up and demand real change, you know, um, not hope and change, you know, real change, right? And so what's it going to take? I mean, I'm there fighting. We're looking at changing some uh, rules on 216D with medical expenses deduction, but that's going to be a regulatory change, right? The next president can come in and overwrite all the stuff that President Trump has done. And so my hope and prayer is, is that come January, 2020, you know, if we get the house back and, and President Trump is the, is the president, we need to move forward with some, permanent conscience protections. You know, maybe even look at uh, a private right to action, right? There was a there was a hospital system up in Vermont that just uh, there was a, a press release on that where they're forcing nurses to uh, participate in abortions, right? And so what's going to happen to this hospital? Somebody's going to file a complaint at Health and Human Services, Roger Severino's office, you know, at the o- Office of Civil Rights at Health and Human Services and they're going to have to do an investigation and they may have to withhold some federal funding because that's the only authority they have but so far they haven't taken these actions that if we have like a private right to action where that nurse could directly sue the hospital system for violating her conscience you know that could be there's got to be some parameters set but that would put some teeth in this conscience argument and I mean to me it's it's crazy that we have to come and fight for our constitutional rights you know, freedom of conscience, you know, a very fundamental right in this country, but we have to fight Congress for that.
1: Yeah, you're right. And, you know, I, I think that not a lot of people think about the, uh, from the from the perspective of medical practitioners, nurses, yeah. doctors, surgeons, administrators, the burden on them, and often the burden on their rights, rights of conscience to uh, have to be a part of things that they morally object to. And I think just tying back to what we we're talking about a minute ago for Medicare for all, if, if a system like that were to pass, it's, implicitly saying that, you know, you, Tom and I, we, we all have the right to someone else's labor, right? We have the right to these medical practitioners labor and sort of, you can get there via the transitive property that like we have the right to make them do things that we object to because it's, it's my right to get these things that are classified as healthcare. So it's, right. it's, it's a very dangerous line of thinking.
2: Yeah. It's also dangerous too. Like when you see those uh, cake making contests or those cake making cases that they are familiar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was just at a, a bar uh, meeting on that in, in Arizona And the argument from the other side is very disturbing. You know, if you, it's okay for you to violate your conscience. And if you refuse to violate your conscience, you just need to get out of the practice of medicine. You need to get out of the practice of law, you know? And so to me that it's just, first of all, the argument falls flat. Well, why am I violating my conscience and you don't have to, right? You know, it's just... It's a, it's a spurious argument, and I think it's just, they're just getting more and more emboldened by this.
0: So when, at its best, authentic medicine should always produce life-affirming and basically pro-life outcomes, can you speak to some of your experience that you, you mentioned previously, working as an attorney prior to solidarity, especially with cases maybe involving end-of-life issues or denial-of-care issues, the sort of things that represent continuing areas of weakness in terms of life affirming outcomes for Americans. I mean, you know, where people are falling through the cracks of our present system.
2: Yeah, I, the biggest thing I fought in my law practice was uh, euthanasia. You know, your life is not worth living. No, no, no. All life is worth living, right? You may have hardship, you may have a lot of lot of issues you are dealing with, but all life is precious, you know. And so, as a as a healthcare sharing ministry, we have to we have to constantly be talking about that evangelizing that catechizing that to our faithful because our culture is telling us otherwise and so we just have to be that voice to uh, to, to encourage them
0: what do pro-life americans need to know about american health care particularly about our potential future in american health care
2: well if we just talk about what the present is pretty clear you know um, doctors are being forced and nurse, mostly nurses are being forced to do abortions. Just like we talk about what happened at the Vermont hospital this week. You're constantly being, um, ch- your, your faith is constantly being attacked. And that's why we have a safe haven here um, of health sharing ministries. It's a federally protected conscience right now, health sharing ministries. And that's why I fight so hard here in DC to protect that. Because in my opinion, this is the only place the faithful can come to, so they don't cooperate in, in, in immoral and you know evil acts. That's number one. But number two is you're seeing a lot of the providers I'm talking to, Brad, I don't think I can practice um, medicine in 10 years because I know the insurance companies and the government's going to force me to violate my conscience. And so that's what we're trying to do at Solidarity is I want to be a safe haven even for those docs. So if we can, if we can fast forward like 10 years from now, um, how many Solidarity members do we need to have here in the DC area? where we can support a direct primary care model, you know, maybe a small hospital, you know, that, that so they can abandon traditional insurance and go with the health sharing ministry for the sole reason that protecting the conscience, but also delivering fair and reasonable pricing for healthcare. You know, just like we talked about earlier, doctors can make money on me, on Medicare if they don't have to deal with Medicare, right? You know, and so if we, and basically what we are, we're a cash bay, cash basis system, right? Our members contribute to their account. We associate and we, you know, readjust these accounts to make sure these providers are paid in a timely manner.
0: Okay, Brad, thanks so much for walking us through this, for introducing us to health sharing, for talking about the, the present and future state of American healthcare, especially as it relates to life issues. One of the things we do every show is our shot of gratitude. So Brad, I'm curious, what is something that you are grateful for?
2: Well, first of all, my family, my wife, for getting me into this mess, right? (laughs) Number one. Uh, But number two, um, at Solidarity, I'm just very grateful for the team we have. We have about 48 employees now. And what they're doing there to encourage our members, to be advocates for members, it's very edifying for me because I'm not there in the day-to-day operations lots. I'm always traveling. But people come up to me at a meeting, you're Brad Hahn, you run Solidarity HealthShare. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. Right. And so that's all because affirming. Yeah, yeah, that's not because of me. Well, maybe partly, but it's mostly the Lord, but it's mostly because our member service reps, they care so much, you know, for our members. I'm just grateful that they got my back.
0: I'm grateful for the work you're doing, but in particular, hearing that there is innovation, that there is entrepreneurship in the healthcare space, I think way too often, especially in the political realm, we can think of these as kind of hermetically sealed areas of the economy where this stuff isn't happening. So it's it's really interesting to hear uh, how that's being put into practice. How about you, Noah? What are you grateful for?
1: I'm thankful for uh, being a part of a community. You know, I think that what Brad was talking about, what what Brad's been talking about, it's like people being a part of this sort of large community You may not know everyone, but you're all caring for each other. And in sort of a more micro aspect, I'm even thankful for. And I'll be leaving on a trip uh, for two weeks. And a friend of mine is going to just be, is going to be watching my dog. And like knowing that I can have friends and people I can rely on to provide care for a creature that I care quite a bit about is is a great
0: thing. There you go. All right, Brad, thanks again for introducing us to these issues and the distinctive role that health sharing is playing in American healthcare, especially as it relates to the human right to life. It was great to be here with you. Yeah, thank you so much. Absolutely. As we continue these conversations, we want to grow our listenership, and we need your help to do that. Ratings and reviews are critical to spreading the word. So please, stop what you're doing, pull open Apple Podcasts, or whatever you're listening in, and rate the show and consider leaving a review. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, whatever, drop us a line at lifeataul.org. I'm Tom Shakley, and until next time, thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law.